One of the phrases I hear most from my non-religious friends is, uh, that's a, a quote from Scripture, is, don't judge me. And I think that many people have a good reason, uh, have, have many good reasons for, for speaking that to, to Christians. Because uh, there's been an excessive, sometimes excessive amount of judgment and condemnation that's been put on people uh, unrightly sometimes. But often with that phrase is uh, this idea that many believe that God, being a God of love, uh, can't judge. He can't, we can't picture in our mind how those two things are compatible together. A God of love and a God who judges. Isn't that unloving? Last summer I listened to an audiobook from a, uh, about a former Alabama death row inmate uh, named Walter McMillan. He was convicted of killing uh, a white woman in the 19, early, or late 1980s. But after further investigation and looking at all the evidence and the eyewitness, some, it was found that a lot of the eyewitness evidence was ignored. Uh, just over and over, this case was botched, even to the, the judge um, not being fair and being impartial. But what was shocking is that it took five appeals for it finally to be reversed. It took six years of this guy, Walter McMillan, being on death row before his crime uh, was, before his conviction was re- eventually reversed. Um, that's six years on death row for a crime he didn't commit. Upon the news that this conviction had been reversed, McMillan was described not as joyful, but angry. Why? When asked why? Because, he said, of all the years lost, all the hurt and all the injustice that was done in the name of justice. Now, when we hear stories like that, we don't say, oh, well, that's no big deal, right? It, it should make us angry. It should make us upset. It's that um, we don't think it's right or it's just for a judge, for a court to be corrupt. We all want a just judge for people like McMillan, who may not be able to afford good lawyers and, and all those different things. We want a just judge. You see, often um, in the Bible, as was read in the psalm earlier, it celebrated a God of justice because often the people in the Bible are in the place of McMillan. The ones that have been done injustice or, or done w- evil or wickedness has been done towards them. So we, they often, the Bible often celebrates a God of justice because that means a day of vindication for the innocent. It's about a day when evil powers will no longer triumph. But of course, if you're the sister, you've got to think about the other perspective here. If you're the sister or the brother of the young woman who was killed and murdered, you still don't know who murdered your sister, right? They want justice too. The sister and brother of the woman that was killed, we, they, um, they would want a judge to give what was deserved to those that did wrong, did evil. We also feel, we would feel, if we were their brother, that woman's brother or sister, we would feel hurt and anger that her life was taken. So again, we would feel anger. Why? Because maybe we loved our sister. And that evil took place. And we, if, if you feel love, 
then you will also feel anger at injustice, at evil, and what the Bible also describes in the same way, unrighteousness. Again, we would want a day of right judgment if we were in the case of the sister of this young woman. You see, the fact is that because we love means that we want justice and a right rendering of judgments. And we may, and the fact that we feel anger against injustice and unrighteousness or wrongdoing and evil is, is justified when something good and right has been violated. How much more would God? How much more would God feel anger at injustice, at unrighteousness, at evil? This is why the Bible celebrates the God of justice and judgment. We want God to bring just judgment, and we would want a day when God will set everything right, giving evil people what they deserve. This week, we begin a new series on the Minor Prophets, which are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and they're short uh, books written by prophets who are the spokespeople for God at this time uh, in the life of the Jewish people, Israel and Judah. Sadly, the story of the prophets... Old Testament prophets in this time of the Bible is that is one in which God's people are not the innocents here, but often the perpetrators of evil and injustice and unrighteousness. Most gravely, they have committed evil by rebelling against their God to whom they have promised to love. They are the ones, sadly, deserving of judgment. This is where we find the book of Joel. So page 760 in the black Bibles that are in front of you. The book of Joel is a prophet speaking to the people of um, the Jewish people. It's difficult to determine exactly when this, uh, when this book is dated, possibly around 800 BC. So the prophets, as I said, were spokespersons telling God's people his message and what he wanted them to hear at that time. So let's begin by reading Joel 1.1. To give you a little framework for reading this, it's highly poetic, so it's difficult to understand. Um, but it's to give you a framework, a terrible locust invasion has just come upon God's people and upon the land in the Middle East, uh, Mesopotamia, Middle Eastern region, below what would be, today would be modern-day Lebanon. And it's destroyed everything. That's the context. The word of the Lord, Joel 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Joel. So this is, this is saying a message came to Joel to tell the people. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. So this is God's promised land where the Jewish people live. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their, grand, their children and let their children tell, an, tell another generation what the cutting locusts have left, the swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts has eaten. What the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts came after them and have eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. There is no more wine. Because of... And for a nation has come against my land, powerful and beyond number. The nation is a reference to the locusts, a nation of locusts, a swarm of locusts. Its teeth, the locust teeth, 
are lion's teeth, and its fangs are of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. The ways of food, getting food in the land, has been eaten. It has stripped off the bark of the trees and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Now I'm going to skip ahead to verse 15, okay? Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. The day comes. Is not food cut off before your eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods, and the storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down. The locusts have gotten into the storage places. Okay. The, the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. That's the animals in the fields. A herd of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. It's uh, like a locust or like a fire. And the flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks have dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A grim picture. The first thing we see is that the locusts have brought total destruction. It's hard for us to imagine the devastation and destruction that a swarming infestation of locusts could have brought, but it would have been terrible. Verse 4 explains how everything was mopped up by these insects. It's a highly poetic uh, form that the locusts are pictured as having coming and cut down like a mower. So the first swarm of locusts came and just cut everything down. The second swarm of locusts came and swarmed everything and ate. And then another swarm of locusts came and mopped up what was behind them and destroying and essentially emphasizing how the the locusts have mopped up all living vegetation in their path of destruction. So it's hard hard for us to imagine this. So I, I got a video here. This is Madagascar, I think, in 2014. Burn is appealing for more than $41 million to eliminate a severe plague of locusts in Madagascar. Half of the money is needed by June to try to save the country's crop production. Around half of Madagascar is currently infested, with each swarm made up of billions of insects. I think they requested $41 million to help with what those locusts did in Madagascar. So we have to remember, these are agricultural people, okay? So where do they get all of, where does their livelihood, where does all their food come from? Um, Thus, the locusts have taken it all away. There is no way of life. So there is no wine, verses 5 and 12. There's no olive oil, which is life for these people. The wine was what helped them have clean um, water and to some extent. Fields destroyed everything. All the fields were destroyed. Verses 10. Verse 7, no fruit. There was no grain for food and animals was gone. Verse 11. No uh, 
The locusts had even gotten into the storehouses in verse 17, as I read, we read earlier. The animals did not even have grass to eat. So it's as if you can hear the cows moaning and groaning because they're hungry all night long, but there is no food. No food imports, no fridges, no freezers, no supermarkets to get the backup, no canned goods to get food. Everything is gone. Absolutely a devastating natural disaster. Even more, these people are highly religious people. At the center of their culture was the temple, temple worship, and it was no longer possible for them to go out and, and have any food offerings, which was essential to, essential to how they made offerings at the temple. They're gone, verse 9. The locusts are compared to a fire consuming the, fro- the, the crops, the fields, the trees, everything. They even blot out, they're so thick, they even blot out the sun and moon. Verses 2-2. This is total devastation. And, I mean, it would have been riveting where they were like, what are we going to do? And here is the most shocking part that Joel says to them. The Lord sent this. The Lord has sent this. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near. That means it's here. And with this day of the Lord, with the locusts, has come destruction. For the Almighty has it comes. From the Almighty it comes. Verses 2-11, the Lord utters His voice before His army, His army, figurative language, for the army of locusts. For His camp, that means the, the plethora of locusts, is exceedingly great. And He, that's a reference to the Lord, who execute His word is powerful. In other words, it's the Lord who has commanded this army of locusts upon you. In other words, God has commanded this army of locusts. And in verse 25, he makes it explicit by stating, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Why? Why would God do this to people? Why? Joel pronounces that the destruction of the locusts is the day of the Lord's judgment. The day of the Lord is the most significant theme in the book of Joel. And you'll see it all throughout the minor prophets and some of the other prophets. Um, and sometimes it's just, it just says the day as well, even besides the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a reference to the Lord, the God of the Jewish people, bringing his presence to rule among his people. Think of a king returning to set up his dominion and set things right in his kingdom. Okay? But remember, God is spirit. So his presence, it's not like he came down as a person, but his presence was normally limited in the Old Testament to the temple uh, for at least this period of time. So God's presence would come to the temple because he couldn't be with the people. And they had to have sacrifices so that the priests could even be near God's presence. But when the Jewish people were oppressed by their enemies and they were fighting and they were struggling and all these different things, they would pray to the Lord to bring his presence, to bring a day of the Lord um, so God's people could be set right and things could be better. Okay, God could reign. It was thought that their king would bring vindication for them like Walter in that story, to bring a day that set everything right, right? All of this is true if, all this is true if, you are in good standing with God. But if you're not in good standing with God, then God's presence would mean judgment for evil people. 
like a good, just judge. The Lord will give people only and simply what we deserve. The problem is, is that when people have been rebelling against God and living however we want to live and worshiping and, and living our lives devoted to other things besides God, His presence means judgment. Listen to Amos' words in Amos 5.18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? Don't you know the day will be darkness, not light. Over and over, God's darkness is a symbol a metaphor for judgment. Often, we sing songs. We can casually come to church or listen to Christian music and say things like, God, show me your glory. We want to see you. But we often don't realize what we are saying when we say things like that, right? God is so holy, so pure, so right, so awesome. To see Him would cause us to tremble before Him. Chapter 115 Alas, for the day, the day is near, meaning it's symbolism, that's metaphoric, figurative language we're saying, it's here right now, okay? And as a destruction, and as, as it is here, destruction from the Almighty comes. Verses 2-1, blow a trumpet in Zion. That means get everyone's attention. Sound the alarm on God's holy mountain. That's a reference to Jerusalem, where the temple is. Let all the inhabitants tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of Darkness and gloom. The Lord is judging these people for having sent the locusts, uh, and by having sent the locusts who block out the sun in the dark and in the sky in utter darkness. Also, in chapter two, um, speaking of an army of locusts, maybe a foreshadowing of the future of a future, a future armies to invade God's people. So God's people, God promised, if you follow me, I'll protect you. I will love you and we will be in relationship with one another and it will be good. But if you don't, other people, locusts will invade your land. Other people will come and take over you and oppress you. Joel is saying, God has sent this army and he may and will send more unless you turn to him. Recognize people. He's saying, wake up. Sound the alarm. God is judging you for your sin." Joel speaks of the day of the Lord being a future time in which God the Lord will judge all the earth. So Joel's not just speaking of this time, it's a foreshadowing, and he also speaks clearly of a future day in which God will judge all the nations of the earth. Chapter 3 talks about this. Um, 3-2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. So this is a play on words. Jehoshaphat literally means valley of judgment. So he's saying, I'm going to judge you in the valley of, I'm going to judge all the nations in the valley of judgment. And I will enter into judgment there and on behalf of my people because they have scattered, um, they have scattered them, my people, among the nations and have cast lot for my people. In in other words, take them into slavery and sold them into slavery and have traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. The surrounding nations had captured some of the northern part of God's people this time, and Israel um, was sold into slavery, and some of them in the future that would happen, more of them would happen as well. For what? What does God say? What did you sell? What did the other nations, here he's judging the other nations in particular, for what? For money and for prostitutes. God's not happy with this. God, it's not okay for people to do this. 
All of this angers the Lord because He loves His people. The rest of the chapter speaks of God bringing future ba- a future battle that will destroy the nations in the Valley of de- Judgment. He also calls it the Valley of Decision. Meaning a time of judgment. What does this say to us, okay, 2,800 years later? What does this mean for us today? Well, first, it does not teach us that every natural disaster or war is God's, necessarily God's judgment on a particular people. We don't have prophets in the same way as the in the New Testament in the past Jesus' time as we did in the Old Testament, okay? Jesus' coming changed how God spoke to his people. And now the most direct and perfect word that we have from God comes from the Bible. So unlike Joel's day, we don't have a way to know whether some and a tsunami, for example, or an, a war is God's judgment. And, and some people um, are really not careful when they, they say things like that uh, on public television or whatever. And we should be very careful about making any judgments um, of people based on tsunamis or earthquakes and all those kind of different things. But it does tell us, what it does tell us is that God does sometimes judge people for their sin with natural disasters, okay? So when a natural disaster comes, we should examine our own hearts and our own, the people around us in the sphere of influences we do have, and we should ask ourselves, are we right with God? Is there sin in our life that we are rebelling and living how we want to live and holding and continuing to act like God doesn't care about that, right? We should examine our own hearts. We should check, check our own hearts. It tells us that it also tells us that God is a God who, who judges and who will bring judgment on all the earth. This is a the judgment in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the eternal judgment of hell and at the end times in which God will judge all peoples. The Lord ro- roars from Zion. Um, chapter three, verse sixteen says, "The Lord roars from Zion, and the heavens and the earth quake." Our God is fierce. He is awesome in power. In the Narnia books, in the Narnia movies, we see Aslan, and Aslan, Lucy, someone asked Lucy, is Aslan safe? Lucy says, who said anything about safe, about Aslan? But he is good. Aslan cannot be tamed. He is a fierce lion, and against the wicked witch, and against her evil dominions, he is ruthless. But he is good. For those who are his. He is a good lion. He is a good God. And this is a, this is a picture of God. Our God is not like Santa Claus. Okay? Just everyone's on the nice list. We act like some people aren't, right? But, or some people aren't, but really everyone is. Right? No. Our God is not like that. He is a roaring lion. Who is fierce against injustice and unrighteousness and evil. This is our God. He is holy. And thus, God will judge. This is a key thing that I want you to get. God will judge the earth, including us. This judgment, we must not miss, is upon God's own people in Joel. How scary is that, right? Including his priests. He says, wake up, priests. With tears in our eyes, we should say this. That it's not something we joke about. It's not something that we say to hell with you or whatever or damn you. Like, that's not something we should say. Why? Because it's not something that's just, oh, like, it might happen. Or, oh, it's, 
it's funny. No. God's judgment is, is well, God will not give any people, anybody, an ounce more than what we deserve. It won't be flippant. It will be exactly what is in our hearts. So, what should we do? What he called, what Joel says is lament, which means cry out to God. Here, Joel gives us a pattern. In the book of Joel, we see a pattern for, for how we should respond to sin in our life. When God points out sin in our life, we see a pattern here. Judgment of sin. So think sin, sin's pointed out. Judgment, lament, repent, restore. Judgment, lament, repent, restore. Lament means cry out to God. Here Joel gives us a pattern, like I said, for pointing at, for how we should respond. Cry out to God when we have sinned. Verse 5, awake you drunkards. You people who are just drinking and acting like all your days away and just partying, acting like it's not to be serious, awake. Lament. He says, be ashamed. Verse 11. Verse 13. Put on sackcloth. That was like their way of showing. Like they're like wearing black at a funeral. Okay? Lament, O priests. He tells even the people of God here. Wail, O ministers at the altar. Go and pass the night. All night long, stay in your mourning clothes. In your black clothes. In your sackcloth. O ministers of my God. To lament is a passionate expression of sadness. To express our sadness that God has brought sin against, uh, or judgment against us because of our sin. He's pointed out our sin to us. The goal here is that God's people will be broken, will be broken before God. God wants them to be humbled before them. You see, these people were in sin, and so God wants them to wake up. They were still, here's the shocking thing, they were still going to church, to the temple, right? He's saying, what are you doing? Wake up in what you're doing. Be real with God. Their worship was empty. It was a show. And God has brought judgment to bring that out for them to see it. Open their eyes and wake up to what they're doing. So God has brought something absolutely that would bring them absolutely to their knees. Do you realize that God's goal for you is not to simply be happy, but to be happy in God forever. His goal, that means that His goal for us is to love Him first and supremely with our lives. He doesn't care how successful we are, how good of grades we get in school, you know, how happy our family is, if all of that is for ourselves, for our own gain, for whatever we want in our lives, right? But he wants us to do those things for God, for him. If loving him is not why we go to church or why we pray, he will bring suffering on our lives at times to wake us up to that. Hear me, I want you to hear me really carefully here, and, and I'm trying to be careful in what I'm saying. Suffering is a multifaceted and complex thing in the Bible. Um, it's not one thing you can always point to for why suffering happens, okay? So I'm not speaking to all the reasons of why suffering happens. I'm only speaking to one of the reasons that suffering happens. Much of suffering in the world is a result of living in a broken world, and it has no fault of our own, right? It could be 
sin that happened against us. But one reason for suffering is that God is meant to bring us as nothing else, as nothing else can. He's meant to bring, he's trying to get our attention so that we will depend on him. We will realize how dependent we are upon him for everything. Wake up. We have to wake up. What are we living for? What's our life about? If it's not God, we should lament. We should be humbled. We should be broken. We should be sad. We should cry if we need to. Before God brings judgment upon us to get our attention. Herein is, a, is our further key truth. God will judge sin, so we should turn to Him. God will judge sin, so turn to Him. Let's read Joel 2, 12-16. Yet now, yet even now, in the midst of this judgment, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, tear your hearts, not your garments, not your clothes. Return to your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He might turn and relent here and leave a blessing behind him instead of suffering. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate. Set a, have a fast. So, call a solemn assembly. Gather everyone together. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Joel is saying, repent which means turn away from sin. Repent, which means turn away from sin. Joel is pointing out, don't simply tear your clothes. This was a practice in the Middle East. It still exists today when people are mourning, like when someone has died. They'll tear their clothes to show how brokenhearted they are, to show their sadness, to lament. Here he's saying, listen to this in a different translation, turn to me now while there is still time. Give your hearts to me. Come, fasting, weeping, praying. Morning. Don't tear your clothes in your grief. Tear your hearts instead. Return to your Lord, for He is merciful and compassionate, slow to angry and filled with love. God's heart is love. At the center of what He, what he desires for us is that. But he, he desires for us to turn from our sins so that we can see it and we can know Him in that way. It's not turning... The goal is to turn to God. Return to the Lord. Give Him your hearts. In so doing, repentance, turning to God, is also an act of worship to God. Okay? Fasting, gathering everyone together is real. He's calling for real, true worship now. The heart of repentance is a true worship. When we turn to God like this, we, when we are real with God like this, we see the true heart of God. We are able to be in loving relationship with God. Why did God send the locusts? Because God is love. God wants us to be close to Him. When we wander away from Him like Israel did, He is saying to us to return. Uh, to quote from a, my kid's book, it talks about this verse in my uh, children's book. and It says, come back to me because I am gentle and kind. I am slow to become angry with you, but very quick to forgive you. So come back home to me. Be sorry inside the depths of your heart. I'm waiting to forgive you. Wherever you are, 
whatever you've done, just come. God is love, and He loves us, so turn to Him. Come to Him. Here's the crazy thing. If we do not repent, if we do, or here's the crazy thing. If we do repent through Christ, He actually doesn't say just maybe, but He promises He will. Even more, He will restore what was broken. So judgment, so the pattern, judgment of sin, God points out our sin. Lament, repent, restoration. Be restored. This is our last movement here in the book of Joel. It's, and he's saying rest, restoration. In other words, that word means be saved and be revived. Be saved and be revived. God will judge, so turn and be saved. This is the key idea of the whole of, of all of what we're saying today is God will judge, so turn and be saved. God will judge, so turn and be saved. In the midst of judgment, what does Joel say? Verses 3, 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2, 18. The Lord became jealous for His land. That's the promised land here that, that's been destroyed. And He had pity on His people. The Lord answered their prayers and He said to His people, Behold, I'm sending you grain and wine and oil, everything you need, and you will be satisfied. You'll no longer be in hunger. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. That means a joke among all those other around you. I will remove the northern far from you. So that could be the locusts or the invading armies. It's difficult to know um, exactly here whether, yeah, Anyway, I'm going to skip over that part. <laughs> um, his promise here in verses 2.32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That, does that verse sound familiar? Because Peter and Paul in the New Testament pick it up and say, everyone who calls on the name will be saved. Although, verse 3.16, though the Lord roars in judgment against sinners, to quote three, the rest of 3.16, but the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. If the people will turn to Him, then He promises to provide rescue, refuge. In the midst of judgment, there's a cave, there's a fortress, a castle, in which His people can go in and be safe and be saved and be rescued from that judgment. Fear not, O land, verse 221. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. It's not this promise, as was picked up by Peter, is not simply for, in Acts chapter 2, is not simply for um, Israel. It is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved from the coming judgment that God is bringing. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Verse 228, which is quoted in Acts 2 as well. That means he will pour out his spirit, his presence. The Lord, the day of the Lord will come. But this time, it will come, and my young, and my, and the young, and the old, and the servants, everyone will prophesy and, and be happy in God. Joel's predicting a time of restoration, a time in the future where God will revitalize and fix all that is broken by sin. He's looking to a day when His presence will be good with His people. 
and not in judgment. He's looking for a refuge and a rescuer. That castle, that refuge and that cave of, of salvation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. On the cross, Jesus bore the judgment. He bore hell in judgment so we don't have to. Right? God's presence can finally be with His people without judgment, but in love and goodness and joyfulness and freedom. God can dwell with His people. He can, his presence can be with His people. It gets even better though, right? He promises He will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. God's restoration means revitalization, which was lost. Joel 2.25, I restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures in the book of Joel. Look, um, look at this, uh, um, these pictures here. This is from a show my wife loves, many of you. Uh, ladies, maybe some guys here love the show Fixer Upper, where they take houses that the years have decayed and broken, right? And they take that house, that's the same house. Crazy, right? That's revitalized. Go to the next picture. Same room. What the years and mold and has broken down is revitalized and brought back to life. I mean, who would have thought that that could be the same place, right? That's what God says He will do from the inside out in us when we trust Him. Part of that begins now, and then part of that happens in the future when, um, after the coming judgment, when, when we are in heaven with God and He makes all things new. He restores all things. So... Um, I just, I joke because it's like, I just hope, you know, just got to hope that Chip, Chip Gaines, the guy that does all this work, um, is, is Jesus and not, and not you, husband, right? <laughs> uh, because then, then your wife wants you to be the fixer-upper. But it's Jesus, right, in this picture. Um, this is, this is the, uh, a glimpse of what God can do in the midst of a judgment for our sin. Judgment, lament, repent, restoration. That's the movement that we see here. And this ought to be a model for our life when God points out sin in our lives. Um, I want to end by telling about a Christian couple that uh, the husband um, the husband had an affair and um, he was caught in his uh, lies and his sin. And um, I'm slow to say this, but even in the man's own words, he experienced judgment um, from God for his sin and what he had done. And uh, he lost his job as a result and nearly lost his family. And he, he came to a place where he was completely humiliated. Tons of people knew about this whole ordeal. And his wife uh, had every right to leave him, was threatening to leave him, right? And even there, you know, what was crazy is that he had not confessed, confessed it all. He was still lying about much of the whole ordeal. Until one night, God brought him to a place of complete lament where he's just mourning and crying over the sin in his life, and he finally confessed it all. In lament and repentance, he finally came clean. And all the years prior to that, to this affair um, of hidden sexual sin was brought to light. And through pastoral care, loving friendship, and counsel, this, this couple fought for their marriage. And um, she publicly, the, the wife publicly wrote this two years, two years later, reflecting on their previous 
uh, event in years since. And she said this, sometimes the thing you never would choose for your life chooses you for a reason. And the thing that you would never pick picks you to become brave. And sometimes you get what you need by walking through what you never wanted. And the thing that you never wanted may turn out to be the thing you needed most. You need most. I hadn't known, but now believe, the thing that may make you fall a bit apart may be a part of what one day holds you a bit together. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside, where God, in the inside, God is making new life. In the quote from scripture, she says, not a day goes by without God's unfailing, unfolding grace. The book of Joel sadly ends with the warning of a day of judgment. And Israel, the sad story is, did not heed it. It was a stark warning to them, and it's a stark warning to us to take sin seriously because God will judge. But it's also in the midst of that judgment we see incredible hope. When God restores the fortunes of Israel, the the years that the locust, that sin has eaten, can be restored more than before and revitalized. So what I want to end with is grab hold of that hope while you still can. Grab hold of that hope and let God restore you and revitalize your life. What we're going to do now is Isaac's going to come up and we're just going to have a few minutes before we sing the, the last song um, just to, I just want to call us to heed these words and, and look inside of our hearts and see if there's sin within us that we have not confessed to the Lord or to others.